0: Here in John's Gospel, in the 14th uh, chapter, we uh, continue in the upper room with the Lord Jesus Christ as uh, the Savior gives assurance both of his ongoing support of the disciples and of God's peace for them, even even in his physical absence. And so I want to consider three things again uh, with you this morning, verse 25, the emphasis on Jesus' teaching that he places, how he emphasizes his own teaching. And then in verse 26, briefly, uh, the helper, and then in verses 26 and 27, the work of that helper, the work of uh, the spirit. And so before we uh, read God's word, let's pray, asking for his help and blessing. Almighty God, we thank you that you have not left us As orphans, that you, O God, have adopted us as your children, that we may call to you as Father. We thank you that your beloved Son, your eternally begotten Son, has poured out his Spirit, who is the Spirit of holiness and the Spirit of adoption. And it is by him that we call out to you, our Father, asking in Jesus' name that you would speak to us that you would write your eternal truths upon all our hearts, and that you would get all the glory for it. For Jesus' sake, amen. John's Gospel, chapter 14, beginning at verse 24. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. Amen thus far in God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. And so the Lord Jesus begins to conclude one of the sections in this upper room uh, discourse as he emphasizes the benefits his disciples will receive by his going away. The Holy Spirit will come and the Holy Spirit will enable them both to understand and to remember Jesus' words and his teaching. And so let's look now at verse 25, the emphasis on Jesus' teaching. Jesus emphasizes his own teaching, doesn't he? In this large upper room at that last supper with his disciples, and maybe their families are there too, Jesus talks with his loved ones, his friends, who have been with him almost continually, almost continually, for the last three years. And he prepares them now for his going away. He comforts them. And he tries to help them understand, providing them an assurance of his love and his sovereignty, even when he is physically absent from them, to assure them of his power and of his kingdom. And one of the chief ways that the Lord Jesus Christ prepares his disciples for his departure is by emphasizing his word, the word of God. Repeatedly, the Savior has has spoken to them of the importance of his word. And as I've been preparing these sermons, I've, I've wondered, uh, are, are they getting tired of being continually reminded how important Jesus' word is to the Christian life? But then I remember, I'm not coming up with my own lesson plans here. I, I didn't put this stuff here. I'm just reading the book, right? If you've got a problem with it, Take it up with the king. But I do wonder, do we, do we sometimes get, get tired of this theme? Do we get tired of hearing how important the word of God is? Are you, do, you, do you get weary of hearing the importance of, of Christ's word to the Christian life? Or, or have you been confronted with the importance of Christ's word to the Christian life? Have you you considered, does God's word play a significant role in my life? How's your Bible reading? When you read the scripture in worship, is your mind focused on the scripture or on the next 10 things you have to do this week? Has the emphasis... The Savior places on his word, the word of God. Has that emphasis confronted you with a need to repent? To turn from a a dangerous attitude toward his word, an attitude where his word is not prioritized. Have you seen your need perhaps to repent and to find mercy in God and Christ? The mercy he promises in his word to all who seek it. After all, consider the many times in this one chapter, Jesus has drawn attention to his words, what he has said, or his truth, what he has taught. You look at verse two. If it were not so, I would have told you, right? If it were not so, would I have told you, verse two. Verse six, I am the truth. Verse 10, do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority the Father who dwells in me. And then verse 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Verse 17, I will ask the Father and he will send the spirit of truth. Verse 21, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he is the one who loves me. Verse 23, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. Verse 24, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. And now verse 25. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. That's a lot. It's nine, nine times in just 25 verses. Surely every one of us has, has need and reason to repent for our neglect of God's word, for not treasuring God's word as we ought to do. This chapter, one of the things that it does, I think, is is remind us of how far short we all fall. And how great is our need of God's grace to us in Christ. Of how much we need the righteousness of Christ to cover our sins and failings. Our sins even of not treasuring his word. Even as we we read his word, we don't treasure it as much as we should. And, you know, that's a reminder that you're not saved by your quiet time. You're not saved because of how well you've read the Bible this week. You don't get to come to this table because you've read the Bible well enough this week. We are saved by his grace alone. Even as we think about reading the Bible and, and spiritual disciplines. We're confronted with our failure and how much we don't deserve to come. And yet it's the word that says, come. Come. God's word is of paramount importance in the Christian life. It is God's word that that both gives life and gives new life, right? It was God's word that created the universe, or God created the universe by his word, and God's word gives new life and God's word sustains that new life. I was talking this week with the head of a seminary about uh, the work he and his colleagues are doing in a prison in Alabama, teaching and discipling men in one of the dorms. Uh, The prison has essentially given over one of their dorms with 330 felons in it to this reformed seminary and he said the transformation has been astounding there are no longer infractions right they're not finding cell phones pornography or drugs in that dorm anymore he said it's been years since they've had an infraction behavior has been changed you can certainly talk to Bill Henschel about similar things here in Georgia through Disciple Making Mission as well. He said, the former head of the Aryan Society and the head of a black militant group have become more than friends, but brothers in prison. He said, these men have been transformed. And what is it that has transformed that dorm in Bloody Bib Prison? It was not that they they had a a 12-week seminar on racial reconciliation. It was not that they they brought in someone from Berkeley who taught about critical race theory. It was not that they they brought in somebody from the 90s and said, dare to resist drugs and alcohol. What transformed that dorm in Bloody Bib prison was the word of God. (coughs) It was the word of God. It was the gospel. It was the good news of Jesus Christ that God forgives sinners, that God by his spirit speaking in the scripture conforms men and women and boys and girls and five, one of the, the head of the Aryan society, I think killed five people, by the way. These are not guys arrested for, for check kiting. You understand. These are not white collar criminals. What is it that can transform those people into worshipers, into saints? God, by his spirit, speaking in the scripture. And by the way, one of the things that uh, took hold of that prison was not just a desire to repent of their sins, but to worship. I told the the folks in Sunday school this morning that that very... uh, Quickly, as they came to understand the gospel, they said, well, we don't need to just repent of our sins. We need to worship. We need a church. And so they, they went to Warrior Presbytery of, of the PCA and said, we need a church behind the wire. And now on Sunday nights, there are 200-some guys worshiping at Bib Prison because the Spirit of God has taken hold of that door. The Word of God is essential for the Christian life. The word of God is busy and active. In our postmodern age, though, words and language are under attack. Postmodernists destroy language. They replace specificity with vagaries. They deny any inherent meaning in language. They draw the meaning for words and ideas, primarily how the reader feels about them how the reader responds to them rather than the truth of the words and the meaning of the words or the intent of the authors. That's why many activists in our days are alleging silence is violence or that words are dangerous and harmful. There are movements in the wider society to curtail freedom of speech on the grounds that words may be harmful because of how someone might perceive those words how those words might make someone feel. Now, it's on the fringes now, that idea that we need to curtail speech because of how speech might make someone feel. But you know what we've seen over the last 10 to 15 years is how rapidly fringe ideas get a show on cable news. The idea that you should not broach certain subjects in certain ways because someone might respond to what you have said in an antisocial manner. That the meaning of your words is less significant than the response. Whether that response is rational or reasonable is irrelevant. Their concern is how will someone respond to the words. And so words and language, meaning itself, are all under siege in this postmodern society. The meaning of language is no longer rooted in the words and ideas themselves, but how a person feels about those words becomes paramount rather than what the author meant to communicate. And you can see how this is utterly antithetical to the Christian life, to the Christian religion. Our religion, our hope is based upon the word of God, the promise of God. Our life, our salvation depends upon the truthfulness of God's Word. And so we must fight the tendency to adopt a postmodern hermeneutic, a reader response hermeneutic to language. Postmodern and I, and I say that because postmodernism is in the air we breathe, isn't it? So we have to remain vigilant because it's it's all around us. We can't think, well, postmodernism, that's just a threat to those people out there. No, we too are impacted, whether we realize it or not. And so we must be vigilant. We must regularly examine ourselves and seek the Lord's enabling to determine and discern whether postmodernism has impacted the way we view language. Do we believe words have meaning? Does the meaning of words come from the words and the author's intent or our own private interpretation about how the words make us feel? And I was in college once. It really wasn't that long ago. And one of the ways we were warned by our uh, professors, especially the religion professors, that we would see this creeping postmodernism was in Bible studies. When the first people, the first question people would ask themselves after reading a scripture or uh, a text was, well, how does that make you feel? They said, you know, the question that you should ask after reading the scripture is not, how does that make you feel? But what does this teach about God? What does this reveal about man, about yourself? What is true? Not, how does that make you feel? Jesus is emphasizing his word so frequently here. We need to take his word seriously. So Jesus here in verse 25 reminds his disciples that his time with them is drawing to a close. And so he's giving them, perhaps even in condensed form, what they will need, what we will need for life and godliness in his physical absence. Jesus has told them a great many things and he's reviewing what he's told them so far. After all, it's difficult to remember a great many things when they're given in a short period of time. Jesus is giving a lot of important information, vital truths and instructions and commands and comforts right before he leaves. So they won't forget. But, you know, he doesn't just do this review, does he? Look, he gives he gives the helper. He promises the helper. Verse twenty six. Now, the Helper has already been introduced to us in verses 16 and 17. And now Jesus tells us more about him. We noted weeks ago that he is the divine advocate, counselor, and comforter sent from heaven. Here, he is referred to as the Holy Spirit. Earlier, he was the Spirit of Truth. In verses 16 and 17, The helper was sent by the Father at Jesus' request. Here the Holy Spirit is sent by the Father in Jesus' name. And later it is Jesus who sends the Spirit. Now this is no contradiction. But it helps us to see the Spirit receives his mission from the Father and the Son for the people of God. The Spirit comes in Jesus' name. He is the emissary of Jesus. He is not a substitute for Jesus. He is the emissary of Jesus who acts and works on Christ's authority. And so the helper, the spirit of truth, brings the power of Christ to the lives of Christ's people and his disciples so that we may continue in grace, we may continue in Christ, may walk in the way, the truth, and the life until he comes and returns. And so now let's look at the work of the Holy Spirit, verse 26 and 27. The passage before us is the most full description of the Holy Spirit in John's gospel. The focus remains on Jesus' departure, as it has been, of course, for some time now. But the Holy Spirit and his work in light of Christ's departure come somewhat to the foreground. And we'll consider this morning three aspects of the work of the Spirit. First, He is the Holy Spirit. He is not only the Spirit of truth, but John emphasizes here that He is the Spirit of holiness. It's fascinating how the Gospel does not draw our attention primarily to the power or the greatness of the Spirit, all of which are true. But John draws our attention to the holiness of the Spirit. God is holiness. God's holiness dwells with his people. Would you turn to Philippians chapter 2? God declares us righteous in Christ, of course, and, and makes that declaration to be reflected in our lives by our own personal holiness. Through the Spirit working in us and speaking in the Scripture and applying the Scripture. That's what He does. That's how He does it. The Spirit applies the Scripture. The Spirit works in us. Philippians 2, 12. Therefore, my beloved brethren, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it's God who works in you both to will and to will And to work for his good pleasure. And so God is at work in his people by his spirit working for our holiness. Enabling us to strive for holiness. To turn from sin. To embrace Christ in faith, repentance, and new obedience. He is the spirit of Christ. And the character of his spirit reflects what matters most to Christ. And what is it that matters most to Christ? The holiness of his people. Right? This is the will of God for you. Your sanctification. Your holiness. Well, let me then ask by way of application. Is holiness important to you? Is holiness important to you? A better question, is your holiness important to you? Is your holiness important? What is holiness? Holiness for us means to be dedicated to God, to be devoted to religious use. God is purely holy and we should reflect that holiness in our lives. Well, let me ask you, does your life reflect the holiness of God? Are you coming to love what Jesus loves? To like what Jesus likes? To desire what Jesus desires? To, to think as Jesus thinks? Now, we don't instantly become that way simply by being a Christian, do we? We must work at it. And that process is called Sanctification the process of becoming more and more holy. The spirit of Christ, the spirit of holiness is at work in God's people to enable us to desire and to pursue holiness in our lives. Do you see his work in you? One way we see his work in a person is a person's love for Jesus and his word. A desire to know his word better, more richly, more fully. Another way we see the work of Christ's spirit is in a person's lifestyle, that person's way of life, becoming more Christ-like, reflecting the priorities, abilities, and character of Christ in the way he or she lives and speaks in what he or she does. Is your life Characterized by greater love for God now, greater interest in God's word, greater obedience to God's law today, this week, more than yesterday or last week or last year or last decade. We must all be growing in holiness and grace and faith and repentance and love and obedience. You know, if you're not growing, it's a sign of spiritual peril and danger. Either Christ's spirit is not at work in you and you were never a Christian and you only deceived yourself or you have backslidden and you've turned away from the things of grace and the spirit of Christ. You've turned your back on the things of Christ and you've turned toward the world and sin. Are you are you growing in holiness? Either way, you must repent. You know, some people get caught up in the well, was I never a Christian or am I just a backslidden Christian? You know what? The remedy's the same. Isn't it? The remedy's the same. Repent, turn to God in Christ. You must forsake sin and come to God in Christ by faith in the promises of the gospel. You must believe those promises as Jesus offers himself to you in the gospel. You must let go of your sin and your selfish priorities and you must come to Him. Come to Him with nothing but the sins that you've committed. Give those to Christ. You must come to an end of yourself. You must acknowledge your sin. You must turn from your sin. You must realize that you are dead in trespasses and sins. And you must come to Christ for grace and for life. And the life he freely gave for you. He gave his life for you that you may be holy. As he is holy. And so it is the spirit of holiness who enables us to come to Christ. And so that's one of his works. A second work that we will consider, these are the works of the Holy Spirit, we're not being comprehensive here, we're just looking at three of them, is to teach and to remind. You see that in verse 26. Throughout John's gospel, or any other gospel for that matter, Jesus' disciples time and again, they show they don't understand, right? They don't understand what Jesus has said or they've forgotten what Jesus has said. And so one of the chief works of Christ's spirit, that spirit of holiness, is to simply remind the people of Christ what Jesus has said, both to teach us so we can understand it and to remind us of what he has said, whether we've read it or heard it. The Holy Spirit is not to teach anything new in the sense that the Holy Spirit will teach something Jesus has not said or taught, but rather the Holy Spirit comes to apply the same message Jesus gave and to help the disciples understand it. That's the rest of the New Testament, isn't it? The apostles are applying the words of Christ. There are a number of times in John's gospel in which Jesus will make the comment after the, the disciples don't understand what he says. Uh, John will make a comment that they understood it after the resurrection, right? John twelve sixteen comes to mind. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. This is the Spirit's work. You know, John is also giving us insight into the way the Gospels were written and how we know that they are reliable and trustworthy. The Gospels were written years, and in most cases decades, after Jesus ascended into heaven. John's Gospel was written sometime between A.D. 70 and A.D. 100, 40 to 60 years after Jesus walked the earth. Mark's gospel was written about the mid-50s. Still, 20 years after Jesus returned to his glory. And the gospels are eyewitness accounts, though. John's gospel is John's recollection, right? Mark's gospel is Peter's recollection. But they were put in writing years after the fact. So how can we trust them? I can hardly remember what i did last week legal professionals will will tell you that eyewitness accounts are notoriously unreliable ordinarily and yes it's true that events and if they are significant enough or intense enough they might have a serious impact on us for the rest of our lives but even then our eyewitness recollections still cannot always be trusted precisely So how can we know, then, that the gospel accounts are trustworthy and reliable? How can we put our faith in these words? Well, John tells us, Jesus tells us here, the Spirit of God was especially and powerfully and miraculously and divinely at work among the apostles as the gospels were written so they would accurately and reliably be recorded for our hope and faith unto salvation. The Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit, was not at work only in the apostles as they wrote the scriptures and the New Testament. He is at work in us similarly as well. He reminds us of God's words, what we have read in it, what we have heard preached. Jesus knows how ignorant and forgetful we are by nature. And so he gives us his Holy Spirit to help us remember. One of the great sadnesses of the last couple of centuries is there are movements in wider Christianity who, because of their misunderstanding of the Holy Spirit and his work, believe that the Spirit's coming makes the Bible, the written word of God, secondary or unimportant compared to an alleged experience of the Holy Spirit. But whatever they're experiencing is not the Holy Spirit, because what does the Spirit always do? He always drives his people to the Word of God, the Word of Christ. The Spirit does not make the Word of Christ less important. It is through the Scripture that God the Spirit speaks to his people. I think I'll be speaking more on this in the adult Sunday school next Lord's Day. But uh, for the last century, Protestant worship has become increasingly emotive and less centered on God's Word as it embraces a charismatic philosophy of worship. But in reality, Protestant worship, as it has become more charismatic, has become less spiritual. Because the Spirit of God is always driving us to the Word of God. Now, The Spirit doesn't simply remind us of what we have read and heard from God. He also teaches us. Not in the sense that he teaches anything Jesus has not taught. Or that it cannot be learned from the Word. But his Spirit informs us what Jesus meant. He applies the Word of Christ to us. He helps us to understand it. And to live as the word of Christ calls us to live. And so we should see the way of application how the ministry of Christ's spirit was essential and integral to the writing of the Gospels so we can be assured that the scriptures are trustworthy, but also that the ministry of Christ's spirit is essential and integral to a right understanding of the scriptures. That when we come to the scripture, we're not simply coming to a work of literature, We are coming to the word of God and his spirit must speak for us to rightly understand it. We can have confidence that what is contained in the scripture, in these four gospels, is a true account of Jesus' life and ministry and teaching and death and resurrection. We can likewise have confidence that the writings of the New Testament are accurate and reliable as the spirit called to mind the teachings of Jesus as the apostles wrote the letters. Right, Romans or Ephesians or Second Peter or Jude, because these letters are what Christ's apostles lay out and apply as the teaching of Christ for the church in these new situations. I said, so let me ask you: Do you honor the authority of the Scripture? Does the teaching of Jesus and His apostles shape the way you live and guide? And inform your conscience your sense of right and wrong does the word of God govern your desires do you pray for the spirit to help you understand the scripture do you pray for the spirit to help you remember the word of God the word of Christ as you read it and hear it preached let's look at a third thing this Holy Spirit does He brings peace. He brings Jesus peace. That is the peace of Jesus. This is the first talk of peace in the upper room. In one sense, peace is the natural result, the necessary consequence of Jesus' presence. But in another sense, the presence of Jesus Brings conflict. Isn't that what we saw when we made our way through the book of Acts on Lord's Day evenings? That that Christ's presence, as his presence was manifested in a new town, in a new city, in the church, what happened? There was conflict, there was division. And so Christ's presence brings a sword. There's a real sense in which Jesus brings peace to his people and division in the world. Which shouldn't surprise us because he said exactly that is what would happen, didn't he? These men, they felt secure in the presence of Jesus. But Jesus is going away and so it would be reasonable for them to wonder, will his presence Will his peace be gone when his presence is gone? And so Jesus promises his peace will remain with them. That his peace is his gift to his disciples. It is their, in a sense, it is their inheritance. And his spirit ministers that peace. According to the Old Testament, God's people expected the kingdom of God to bring peace. That the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one, would inaugurate an era of peace. But Jesus says his peace is not the peace like the world gives. The expression of peace was a common Roman or Greek greeting in Jesus' day. But it was only a hope for peace. And maybe it wasn't even that. Maybe it was just an Empty phrase. You know, when we say good day to someone, we don't necessarily wish them a good day. Especially when it's an end, right? I bid you good day, sir, in a Jane Austen novel. Somebody ain't wishing somebody a good day. It was just an empty expression. Peace. Rome brought peace, didn't it? Rome brought the Pax Romana. But Rome made peace by the brutal edge of a sword. One uh, Scottish chieftain is quoted by Tacitus as saying, they make a desolation and call it peace. Roman peace came at the expense of others. Roman peace came through conquest and subjugation and taking what belonged to other people. In fact, that's one of the things that led to the downfall of the Roman Empire was the lack of plunder coming into the empire from conquered territories and so they had to uh, inflate the value of their coins. Roman peace was purchased at the expense of others, of conquered peoples. And so Jesus says this peace is not like what the world gives. What is then this peace Jesus lives leaves with his people and how is it different from the peace the world gives? Well, first of all, this peace is different from the world, is that it is not given at the expense of others. The peace Jesus gives comes through him giving himself over to death for our sakes on the cross. It is a peace Jesus has personally and sincerely won. And so he personally and sincerely and spiritually gives it to his people. That Jesus absorbed the malice, hatred, rage, and anger, and rebellion, and sin of others. And he gives peace. He gives his peace surely and permanently. On its best day, the world might achieve a measure of peace... That lasts for a few years. But Christ's peace is certain. And it abides. So second. What what is this peace? It is peace with God. And it is the peace of God. It is peace with God. It is given by Christ. Because of his death. When he was hanged on a tree, Jesus fully satisfied the justice of God because of our sin. For those who come to him in faith and repentance, seeking mercy and pardon, Jesus' blood covers the debt of their sin and ends the war between God and the sinner. And so it is peace with God. But it is also the peace of God. He gives it to his disciples. The peace of God is not merely the absence of conflict as the world gives peace, but a blessed, positive experience of God's goodness and favor and fatherly love. This peace guards the hearts and the minds of Christ's people, no matter their outward circumstances, by assuring them of God's continued love and acceptance and care for them because of Christ. He is the God of peace as we considered a week or two ago on a Lord's Day evening, as we finished Romans. And here on this table is a sign from God of his peace, isn't it? Of Christ's body broken, of Christ's blood poured out, that he himself is become our peace. So how do we experience this peace? Christians experience this peace through the work of the Holy Spirit, through the ministry of the Spirit of Christ. Jesus gives this peace so that we will lack no spiritual comfort for the hard pilgrim journey ahead. Peace with God is a declaration God makes, an end to his war upon us, that while we were dead in trespasses and sins, he, being rich in mercy because of his grace, chose us to save us out of our sins. So the peace of God is something we experience and sense. It is something in which we live and by which we live. And we also grow in our experience of God's peace through the Word of God. God's word is what teaches us of sin. God's word is what teaches us of his mercy and his forgiveness. God's word gives us sure and certain hope of assurance, of salvation, of the resurrection, of the coming of Christ in glory for his people to take us to be with him where he is. The spirit speaking in the scripture provides comfort and stability in the storms of the world. All we need To experience the peace of God is given by Christ through the Spirit in the Scripture. If you do not know, if you uh, do not sense this peace, if your life is filled with anxieties and worries and troubles, is it because you're watching too much cable news and not reading enough of the Scripture? Is it because you're not turning to Christ's word to find peace? Is it because you're focused on everything that is wrong in the world rather than all that Christ has set right for you in heaven? If you're not experiencing the peace of Christ, the peace of God, seek that peace through Christ in his word and prayer. Jesus remains committed to his disciples' experience of his goodness and to our experience of his goodness because we are his disciples. And to that end, he gives his spirit so that we may have true joy and comfort even in the midst of an anxious world. Because his spirit preserves us and teaches us and reminds us of what Christ has said and what Christ has done for us so we can share in his kingdom and go to be with him where he is And here on this table is a sign, is a declaration of that peace. What do we do at this table? We proclaim his death. That he died, that we may live. Here is a demonstration to our sight and taste and smell. That we may know God's peace promised in the word is true. That Christ died. For sinners. And he rose again and returns for sinners. Let's pray. Almighty and everlasting God, we thank you for the greatness of your grace. That your beloved sin came. That he was under the law and yet without sin. Oh, we thank you for your son, who is righteous in your sight. And who gives his righteousness to his people. To clothe us. That we may stand before you as your holy ones. And that we may sit as your children. whom you have adopted and taken to yourself. Bless us we pray for Jesus sake. Amen.